0: I'm Dr. Eleanor Wadinobi and this is Safeguarding Matters, a podcast by the Safeguarding Resource and Support Hub. In this episode, we look at new ways of working post-DRC. In late September 2020, the New Humanitarian and the Thomson Reuters Foundation revealed that more than 50 women were accusing aid workers of sexual abuse in the DRC during the Ebola crisis. In interviews, women said numerous men had either propositioned them forced them to have sex in exchange for a job, or terminated their contracts when they refused. As an international health and human rights expert, I was alarmed by this story. I'm the current senior advisor for the resource and support hub in Nigeria and have a personal background as a physician and currently the international president of the Medical Women's International Association, an association of female physicians globally. I have worked for several years on preventing violence against women and girls and therefore have great interest in this story. Additionally, as founding steering committee chair of a global coalition of frontline activists advocating for a global treaty to end all forms of violence against women and girls. I fully understand the issues around Ebola. Having experienced Ebola briefly in Nigeria. And I would like to use this opportunity to commend and remember a colleague who paid the ultimate price. She discovered the index case and raised the alarm, which saved millions of lives in Nigeria. Dr. Stella Adadevo. In this episode, we'll be joined by Nellie Payton, the journalist who undertook this investigation to understand what happened in the DRC. We'll then be joined by Esther Dross, an experienced safeguarding advisor, to explore what we can learn from this experience to ensure it does not happen again. Nellie, can you tell us
1: in a few words about yourself, please? My name is Nellie Payton. I am the West Africa correspondent for the Thomson Reuters Foundation. I cover women's rights, human rights and humanitarian news across West and Central Africa. And I'm based in Dakar, Senegal. And I was one of the lead reporters on the investigation which we published in September with the New Humanitarian. It was a joint investigation between us. And during that investigation, we found more than 50 women who reported that they had been sexually exploited or abused by aid workers in eastern Congo during the Ebola response. And tell us, Nelly,
0: what exactly was the prompt for you to undertake this
1: investigation in September? The piece was... A long time coming. It was actually a reporter from The New Humanitarian who first heard reports that this was happening on a trip to Beni in 2019. So it was in the middle of the Ebola outbreak and he was tipped off in a bar by people who said that aid workers were having some sort of relationships with, with local women. It's It's worth noting that this was not exactly a secret on the ground it was it was widely known even if people had only heard rumors and it was also mentioned in a a diffid review of corruption during the aid response and also in a report by care international so there had been these reports that mentioned that this might be something that was happening but no one had really gone on the ground to investigate it further, so we, it, was, it was in August that we sent two reporters there for several weeks, and they started asking around, and it was not difficult once they were there to find women, because there, there were, uh, our, our reporters spent only a few weeks on the ground and found more than 50 women. We believe that if they had had longer, they would have found even more.
0: That's incredible but the fact that it was, as you say, not exactly a secret. So tell me, how did you approach
1: survivors on this very difficult issue? So as you can imagine, there's a huge cultural stigma around reporting abuse. Women did not want this to get out in their communities. They did not want their husbands to know. They did not want their families to find out. We worked with a local researcher and a local journalist who helped us find the the first victims whom we talked to. And it was it was a case of once we spoke with a few women, then they referred us to more women. And once the first ones kind of spoke out, I think that other women felt comfortable doing so. We were able to get these testimonies because we ensured the women that that it would remain confidential. We have their names and their their phone numbers, um, but we would never share those. And I think that it might be counterintuitive, but I think that some of the women actually felt more comfortable speaking with us because we were not from the community. We told them that, you know, that, that this would be made public on a global scale, but But because we didn't have connections, like I said, with their families and communities, I think they felt more confident that they would be able to remain anonymous. I can imagine that,
0: you know, you have what I call the three S's when it comes to this sort of violence, you know, of stigma, silence and shame. And, you know, the fact that you had that currency of trust Um, So they felt that they could share their personal stories, but also, as you say, you know, the domino effect of pointing you to the next victim and on to the next. But during the Ebola response, there was a prevention of sexual exploitation and abuse network specifically set up to prevent this type of abuse. But it obviously wasn't
1: effective. Why do you think that was? So it's one of the things that was kind of shocking to us because aid experts and UN officials did say that they knew that because this was, because the Ebola response um, meant a huge amount of money and a large number of foreign aid workers coming into a very impoverished, um, troubled region, Um, they knew that this was a risk. And a number of agencies set up a network which was called the Prevention of Sexual Exploitation and Abuse Network during the response. However, we were able to get hold of some internal reports from that network. And what we found was that it was not started until 14 months into the Ebola response. This was, again, the network which was meant to prevent sexual exploitation and abuse. So the aid workers had already been on the ground for more than a year before this was set up. The network also received, to our knowledge, only about $40,000 to do its work, and this is out of approximately $700 million that was spent on the Ebola response. So this is a tiny fraction of funding which was actually devoted to this issue. And in The internal reports um, that were published by the network, they said that they were under-resourced, they lacked staff, they lacked funding to effectively do what they were meant to do. And there were other problems which they noted, which included lack of communication with local community members, lack of trust, lack of coordination even between the aid agencies themselves. They each had their own process for reporting and for addressing sexual abuse. And so it was not necessarily clear to victims where to go or how to report or what would happen if they did report.
0: You know, when you think of the fact that it took 14 months for the network being established to kick in, and then the, 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 the sheer level of under-resourcing, looking at uh, $40,000 compared to, as you say, $700 million. What a tiny fraction. Do you think that there were there any other reasons why you think the survivors did not come forward prior
1: to your investigation? We interviewed 51 women. Not one of them told us that they were aware of a way to report this abuse. All of the agencies on the ground had various mechanisms. They had hotlines, they had mailboxes, they had email addresses, some of them had a specific point person who you were meant to go to to report abuse. When we asked the women, did you know about the confidential hotline, did you know about who to go to, none of them had any idea how to report. So that's the first reason why we think they didn't come forward. Also. As we mentioned, there's the fear and there's the stigma. And what experts said, whom I interviewed about this, is that if women don't know what will happen when they report, who's going to follow up on their case, what support they will receive, they really have very little incentive to come forward. So in this case, the women told us, why would you even ask if I reported this? Of course I didn't report it. That would not serve my interests. It would only potentially expose me to judgment from my community. I might lose my job. I might lose my family or my husband. So the the women really saw no incentive to come forward.
0: I have, you know, further questions for you, which I'll come to later, but hold that thought for now, whilst I bring in our second guest, Esther. Esther, could you kindly start by just telling us, you know, a little about yourself, Esther Dross.
2: Yes, thank you, Eleanor. thank you for having me. So, my name is Esther Dross. I am an independent in- investigator and um, advisor on prevention of sexual exploitation and abuse working in the humanitarian sector since the early 90s and I've moved in more into prevention protection work, but always linked to the topic we are talking about today.
0: Thank you, Esther. So how can we learn from the experience that has been uh, described
2: by Nelly? I think what is terrible, I was listening to Nelly and thinking, why am I not surprised? Because we have seen this um, already happening a couple of times. And when you were saying it was kind of an open secret and lots of people knew about this, but it's not brought up officially or uh, through the official channels. It always brings us back to the same point, is we have worked a lot on policies. We have talked a lot on prevention of sexual exploitation and abuse. We have set up those numerous complaints channels, but I believe we're still not proactive in going out and listening to people and getting those reports in, which will definitely, as we have seen now in in the Ebola example, but we have seen it in so many other contexts. There is no incentive for vulnerable people, people at risk, people who are desperate, who are in need, who need jobs, who need money, who need security. There's no incentive to bring up a complaint when they don't even know, know how it's going to be handled or even before they don't know how even to bring it up. So I believe it's our own responsibility as organizations to be more proactive and go out and listen to people, encourage our own stuff maybe to be more attentive and report issues. Strikes me when I listen to Nelly and she says, everybody knew. Mm -hmm. And we all know that when the article from the New Humanitarian came up, I know that a couple of people have been checking if their organisation was on the list. I think many of us, we think, oh, I'm so glad we have no complaints. The world is is a a paradise and we all know that it's not true.
0: That's that's a profound statement right there, Esther, that indeed the world is not a, a paradise. I hear you saying that we just need to assume that we are not in this paradise and that sexual exploitation and abuse is already happening. Uh, so we need to move out and find it. What, what are those really very practical
2: steps that we need to take? Well, so we already identified that people do not complain because they do not trust the system. And they have no incentive. But even worse, they don't know the system. They don't even know that it's a right to complain. And by extension, they don't know what they could complain about in the sense of a lack of knowledge simply what is to be expected. So to be very clear, you don't have to have sex with nobody to get a job because we have recruitment systems. You don't have to have sex with nobody to get access to a hospital or to get food or to get whatever you're entitled to have. And because that's not always so clear, people can be quite easily abused or exploited because there is the implicit idea that the one who has more power is actually able to give you something against whatever you can exchange. And then we know that in such a situation what we have to exchange is our body. So it it is a a very fertile um, ground to exploit people. So lack of knowledge for me is a real, real key to go out and tell people very clearly what they can expect, what they can do, how they can address it, and what we will do with their complaint. So the incentive finally is maybe for all of us, and I think most of us, we have encountered sexual harassment or sexual exploitation in our lives, mm-hmm. is to recognise that by talking, speaking up, we will protect others.
0: Thank you for that, Esther. And, and do you in any way think it, it makes sense to involve communities in, in the design phase? The reason I ask this is, right from the start, yourself and Nelly have spoken about you know, the incentive to report But there is no food. I've worked in in the northeast of Nigeria regarding, you know, internally displaced persons camps. So if the very basics are not provided, where is that support mechanism for there to be the incentive to report? And how do we involve the communities in, in the whole design of, you know, how the humanitarian community can best serve the affected community.
2: When you, you know, when people are really poor and you cannot cover the minimum in those camps, of course, the, the idea of exchanging something is is uh, is the, the best idea you probably think you can have. But then, then that's that's why then it's so important and we, as organization limit that possibility from our side. Again, it's it's not the fault of survivors when they exchange something. I think the responsibility is completely with with, with us and with the ones who, are, who have power. To get back to your question of involving communities, that is really, for me, the first step we have to do when we want to set up a system. And I think that is now 15 years ago, we are reminding organizations that's step one is go out and talk with the community. Start with talking about their rights, about the expectations, get to identify what are the best, the most appropriate channels, whom do they trust. We know that it's because of lack of trust that those women don't come forward. If you involve them, they know the system already. So they only know if they want to trust the system if they have some problems themselves. So when we do not involve communities, we've somehow all ended up now with systems which are a hotline, which are an email, and then nobody knows who is opening that
0: that thing. Thank you so much, Esther. I'm going to turn this back to Nelly. What learning do you think there is for the humanitarian and development sector on account of your investigation?
1: So there were a few points that came out very strongly in our investigation, which I think could offer learning for the sector. As Esther said... Being proactive is really key. What we found was that the onus was on victims to come forward. The local police said that they heard rumors that this was happening, but they couldn't do anything because no victims came forward. A local women's association said that they also heard rumors that this was happening, but they didn't really do anything because no victims came forward. And the agencies themselves seemed also to be relying on victims to come forward before they would kind of set into motion a series of, of steps to deal with this, whereas we went looking for victims and found them very easily. Another uh, lesson that came out of this, which many many people brought up, was that the Ebola response was male-dominated on almost every level. I believe that this is the case in most humanitarian responses, um, but some people said it was particularly bad in the Ebola response, that the the... The leadership was all male, and the staff on the ground was mainly male. The World Health Organization said in a report that their staff was 81% male, Um, and we did a survey of other agencies and also found that their responders were 60, 70, 80% male. And so this is also something where you can ask yourself, if that were not the case, would this be happening on such a large scale? Thank you so much, Nelly. When you talk
0: about the onus, it's almost like the burden of proof again on the victim or survivor, Esther. In the light of what Nelly said about the predominance of male leadership, do we need
2: more women in leadership on p s e a well i wouldn't I would never say you don't need female leaders, so of course we need more female leaders i i completely believe that uh, that would maybe change some of the assumptions we make. Like we were saying, we should have the assumption that exploitation and abuse is going to happen. But what I would even see more, because I've also met some great male leaders, I do believe that as long as prevention of sexual exploitation and abuse, coordinators or focal points or however we call them, are not part of the senior management teams, it's very difficult to have a change of uh, organizational culture. In many few organizations, prevention of sexual exploitation and abuse gets to that level of the leadership influence. And I, I believe that this would help to also strengthen implementation, not just having policies, but move those policies from the shelf into the communities and into practice. And if I may say something on recruitment, uh, we've had a lot of focus on recruitment in the sense of looking at potential candidates as potential perpetrators. So how can we identify them better? How can we prevent them moving from one organization to the others? But I think we should look at candidates, not only female candidates, by the way, but also male candidates, as potential prey. Because that's what they very often are in these these contexts. People looking for jobs and they need that job desperately. So they somehow become an easy target. So when we look at recruitment, if you, we start to, to look at the potential uh, recruitees or the potential candidates as being vulnerable people who are desperate for a job, well, then it's also maybe about how we set up recruitment. What the responsibilities people have when they can or cannot decide whom they employ? How do we communicate about this? to the very same people who will actually come and, and, and try to get a job with us. So that they know if I promise a job against sex, maybe that's not even true. Maybe I don't have this power. So for me, this is all about shifting how we look at organizational um, power dynamic. This should be really on the senior management of all our organizations you 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 know made this profound
0: statement about moving policies from the shelf to the communities how can we really practically involve communities esther
2: this is just about going out to talk with a specific community about about our project about our policies about our uh, behavior prohibitions and that they have a right to tell us if things don't go well and so find out what is their best way to do that. However, I think even when we do that, very often we make it quite complicated. It becomes some some kind of special expedition to go out and talk about complaints. I believe this should just be part of of something we just do when we have needs uh, assessment, when we do evaluations we should just follow up on questions like sexual exploitation and abuse, behavioral issues, policies, how to complain. And what I I also think we're missing is we could collaborate much more with grassroots organizations, with gender-based violence uh, organizations, with women's associations, who already do have quite a, a big part of these discussions with communities around uh, around sexual gender-based violence where it, it doesn't look like being so complicated then maybe to add in specific questions on finding out what happens with the NGOs working in that community if, if there is any specific issues linked to gender-based violence, linked to sexual misconduct, so that you get the right contextual information. And there then you can also address uh, problems like stigma. Culture, what, what, how, how can you address these kind of questions in that specific culture? So that we can better integrate that in the way we're responding also and in the way we welcome reports.
0: Thank you so much, Esther. I'm going to turn this back to Nelly. The findings
1: of your investigation came out. What next? Most of the organizations involved said that they were shocked by the allegations. Five of the seven organizations named in the report have pledged to investigate. So that includes the World Health Organization, UNICEF, the International Organization for Migration, World Vision, the medical charity ALIMA, and also the Congolese government has said that it, it would launch an investigation. So we are following up with them to find out what will be done in response to these allegations, and we have yet to hear news of, of the results of the investigations that those agencies are, are conducting on the ground.
0: Your investigation, your report, was that in September? It was at the, published at the end of September. Yes. End of September, and here we are in the middle of December. So we are waiting to hear back from them. Thank you so much to both of you for joining us today. There have been so many nuggets from our speakers today and from their wealth of experience. Thank you so very much, Nellie Payton, for your courage in leading that investigation. Esther, thank you also for your wealth of experience and bringing to us, you know, so many perspectives. That's it for today we hope you found it a useful conversation there were a lot of recommendations so here is our summary of the top takeaways on what we can learn from drc one engage communities from the start it's important to explain to communities exactly what their rights are and what behavior they can expect from us for example Sex will never be a requisite for receiving our goods or services. It's also important to consult with them on complaints mechanisms that are the most appropriate and then communicate those clearly to them. Two, provide incentives to report. You can do this by being very clear about how reports will be dealt with, who will receive them, what will be done, Reasonable timeframes for responses and what support will be provided. Other ways to provide incentives could be by allowing for anonymous complaints and amplifying the voices of survivors by speaking up. 3. Strengthen recruitment processes. We're getting better at looking at candidates as potential perpetrators or prey. We need to continue using our recruitment processes, such as interviews or security and reference checks, to identify potential perpetrators and prevent them from entering our own organisations as well as other organisations. Four, give weight to safeguarding or SEAH focal points in your organisation. PSEAH coordinators or focal points must have weight at senior management and decision making level in order to move policies from the shelf and to communities and communities of practice. By giving these crucial roles a direct link to management, it will allow them to make the changes necessary. 5. Be proactive. This is perhaps the most significant learning from the DRC experience. It's not good enough to sit and wait for reports. It's not fair to put the onus or burden of proof on victims and survivors to come forward. It's our responsibility as organisations to be proactive, to get out there and talk to people. Esther gave some great suggestions, including encouraging our own staff to be more attentive and report issues, as well as adding questions around SEAH into routine processes, such as needs assessments or evaluations. We can also engage grassroots organisations to see if they have insights. Those are our takeaways, but we'd love to hear from you. If you've got any comments or questions about this episode, please join the discussion on our online communities. We'd really love to hear from you on any learning your organisation has taken from the DRC. The link to the discussion forum is in the podcast description. If you don't want to miss our podcasts, subscribe to Safeguarding Matters or sign up to our monthly newsletter on safeguardingsupporthub.org to receive the latest episodes in your inbox. Thank you so much for listening and see you on our next podcast.